0: welcome to the love fly podcast and today's guest captain don riley he's got an awesome background including time in the military which covered the red arrow so i'm really keen to hear about that and i know for the nervous flyers that listen to this that you're going to love what he has to say so welcome don riley Good afternoon. So, Dom, give us a bit of a sort of like a potted history, the Dom Riley background,
1: the Dom Riley biopic. Uh, okay, well, joined the air force straight from school. Didn't go to university. I went straight in because I wanted to be a fighter pilot as soon as I possibly could. And I was very fortunate. I got through all the uh, exams, all the tests, and uh, after flying training, which takes about three years, I got on the front line flying Phantoms, F4 Phantoms, in Germany, defending what was then called the Western World. Against the Soviet bloc, as it was in, uh, so I was on a squadron in Germany aged 21, which is uh, looking back, quite extraordinary, really. And um, mm-hmm. that happened these days, things, uh, things move a bit slower, but also we've, we don't have as many squadrons as we used to. But at the time, it was fantastic. So three years there, and then I went to RF Lucas in Scotland, um, again defending the Western world in Phantoms. But at this time, the threat was much more over the water. It was the, um, the Russian bomber threat coming in from the North Sea over the uh, Iceland ferros Gap. And we spent a lot of time out there, miles from anywhere, looking for Russians, really. And uh, when we found them, we'd shadow them, we'd photograph them, we'd report on them, and we'd come back. Those were called uh, QRA sorties, Quick Readiness Alert sorties, in which case our aircraft was uh, fully loaded, fully armed, and we, uh, we made our presence felt. When we weren't doing that, we were training for it. In to the Falklands, obviously, we were involved at the same time. Always good fun out there. And then I went instructing. R.F. Chivinac, weapons instructor on the Hawk aircraft, and from there I was posted or selected rather for the Red Arrows. And that was back in 1988, and three very happy years on the Reds. I flew as Red 3, inside left, Red 5, outside left for two seasons, and my last year I was deputy leader. Thereafter, finished that, back to the front line, and then a Ministry of Defence, M.O.D. tour called, and then Siren Call of the Airlines was there, and I thought, this is a good time to go and be an airline captain, right airline pilot. So I left through the RAF H38 and joined Virgin Atlantic, where you and I met, Paul, obviously. Mm. And after four years, I was made a captain on the A340 fleet of aircraft, and then the, having flown the A320 as well with Virgin and the A321. And uh, latterly, I finished on the A330 out of Manchester. We moved from Heathrow to Manchester. 23 years. I'm still with Virgin. I'm not flying at the moment. I'm currently off sick. But yeah, I've just done over 25 years with Virgin. That's me. But as oh, you know, and I'll put it out there right away, one of the reasons I'm enjoying this chat, Paul, is I did spend with you nine years, slightly more than nine years, doing yes. the Flying Without Fear course with Virgin Atlantic uh, mm. as the sort of lead captain speaker on that for many years. And I've thoroughly enjoyed that. And I'm delighted to be
0: able to offer some thoughts
1: about those people listening in who are still. Slightly frightened to fly.
0: Yeah, Yeah, help. You, were, you were—I mean, you sure I'm sure you still are—a great speaker. I mean, that was—that was the thing that I—I I knew that when you stepped up there and did your bit, whether you had an hour or three hours or whatever the time on the top on the day was, that you would do an awesome job because of all that stuff that you just sort of danced through very quickly in terms of your background. But I think that oh, there's lots I can ask you about. But so the first. Thing I'm really interested in is the red arrows and what because everyone loves the red arrows don't they when we look at it what's it like <laughs>
1: what's it like yeah, a nice big broad question you get a nice red suit it's hard work basically to, to be selected it's the only unit flying unit within the RAF where you're not posted to it uh, mm. you're selected for it and you're selected by the current team members there are nine Red Arse pilots, I and mean, everybody will be familiar with the, the diamond nine shape. So there's, there's nine aircraft displaying. There are other spares, and there are nine pilots. And there are three guys on their first first year. Rather, there are three guys on their second year, and there are three guys on their third year. So you can work out that every year we need to recruit three new pilots. You only get a three-year slot at it for rotational purposes and for save being burned out, really, because it is, it's pretty hard work. However, it's offset by being the most exhilarating and thrilling flying I've ever done. Really? Yeah. As so I mean, it's,
0: it's good as it looks, then?
1: It is, it is phenomenal. Yeah, the uh, the relationship you build up with your fellow pilots, your team members, is, is beyond words sometimes. You, you have to trust everybody in the section. First of all, very intimidating. The selection process... Now, I've been on both sides of it, obviously. When you want to join, or you think you might want to join, you write a letter to the Air Force. They basically say, I'd like to be considered for selection. All those names will go up to those that the Air Force deems suitable, vaguely suitable, go to the team themselves. uh, And the team will sit down around about uh, January time, when these letters come in, and simply sit down and over coffee in in the crew room. And the boss will read out the names one by one. And if you think the bloke, you hear the name, is a good contender, one of you, I'll assume, will say, yep, and he goes on pile A. If a name comes up and anybody in the then existing team doesn't like the sound of this fella for whatever reason, they've met him before in a previous squadron or whatever and don't think he's the right kind of bloke, then it's a no. You don't have to give it any reason. You just say, I don't think he's suitable this year. And he goes on pile B. And if it's a guy that has applied to join and no one's heard of him, no one's met him, and don't know anything about him, he goes on pile C. Pile B is put in the cupboard. Pile A and C are then looked at again. And eventually you whittle down to nine names. Those nine pilots will come up for a visit to the team at RF Scampton and they'll all get an interview, a, a casual interview with the gang, obviously all of us, the pilots. They're up for two days at least, sometimes three days. So we'll go out socialising. We'll, um, meet them and they'll fly in the back seat of the current team as well. they go through full display with the existing team members because the Hawk is a two-seater. And they'll also have a very important and official interview with the Commandant of Central Flying School, Station Commander and the OC Red Arrow of Red One. And from those nine, again, we'll then whittle down. This takes quite some time because mm. now the, to get those nine down to three for the next season is quite hard work. But it has to be done and it's done eventually and... We all agree that we've eventually chosen the best three for the following year. So So what's
0: what's that criteria? Because I'm assuming that to to even be considered, you have to be all at the similar flying standard, or is that an assumption?
1: You you have to be on fast jets, fact, fighters. You have to be assessed as either well above average or exceptional in your current squadron role. And you were? (laughs) (laughs) I got in under the door. Yeah, I was assessed as well above average on uh, Phantom school. Now, people listening to this that have flown Harriers or likely to say, "Pah!" But yeah, you've got to you've got to cut the mustard. You don't know actually how hard it's going to be. You put your faith in the, the boys who've trained you, and I was—I uh, had two guys on the team already who I knew very well. Mm. They were promoting my case and my name, and similarly, other guys joined when I was with the team, like promoting them. But when you're in it and you start the flying, the training, the workup. Now you, we've all done formation flying in, in the f- front line. It's a way of getting two aircraft airborne, bad weather, or just quickly. And it's a way of bringing aircraft back together quickly to land as a pair. So you do take off formations, take off landing all day long in the, air, in the military, the fast jet world. But what we do in the Red arrows is, is just a little bit more advanced. And you have to trust everybody in the section. There's never any doubt that you're not going to be in the right place at the right time. Because if if you... You're flying with someone in the section who you don't trust. I mean, that doesn't just doesn't happen because the people we select. But if it did happen, then it's not going to work, is it? You can't be looking over your shoulder. And mm. um, when you start flying it, there's a lot of metal around. There's a lot of metal around, all doing about 400 knots and all about six feet apart. Oh, so
0: that's trust just is terrifying.
1: Trust is is a big thing and then you go upside down obviously close to the ground
0: obviously so yes you add yeah.
1: another dimension to it and it, it which is why you probably understand the exhilaration when you get it right and you do it well and you come back from a, a good sortie, and it's a great feeling
0: so what it's about your own fear dom i mean you must just that level of flying how do you overcome that you must have had fear some fears with that surely Apprehension
1: more than fear. Never be I'd never be frightened of anything. No, I, I'm not Fear frightened of but one's always apprehensive and was always careful. And, and that's a kind of mantra through my life anyway. I, I used to do some fairly reckless things as a young man. Um, I don't now, but there's a sagacity of age creeps in. But on the team or on the squadron, you, you have to trust folk and you have to realize that you're there, you're there for a reason, that you're good enough. If you are unsure of your own ability, then on the, on the flying training, you're going to get um, what we call chopped. You're not going to pass the courses. And you might not pass every sortie, every training trip. That's a different thing altogether. But at the end of each course, you've done well enough to get an expert. But slowly but surely, your own confidence builds. And on the team, when I was there, I can quite happily say I flew with some of the best pilots in the Air Force at the time, fighter pilots. But I also know that every one of them was flying within his, his or her his limits. Now, we, I say her, we have had Kirsty, the first female red arrow. She joined the exact same reason. She applied to join. She went for selection. She was good enough. She got the job. So it's not a, um, a male-only club. List. We have had to say, a lady red arrow pilot. There'll be more in the future, hopefully. But the same thing doesn't, doesn't change the fact that when you're in the section, you know everyone's going to be in the right place at the right time. And you've got to conquer your own apprehensions that you're going to be in the right place at the right time. There was one time and one time only, I was beyond nervous after I'd done the work. I mean, I was nervous starting out because you're training now with six existing Red Arrow pilots. Yes. That's quite a club to join when you start working up. But you start in a pair and then a three ship, then a four ship, and then five ship, and then it gets bigger and bigger. Then you fly one half of the diamond left half or the right half, until eventually the boss, Red Wong, thinks, okay, guys, we've done enough now. We're going to put both halves together. That normally happens around about January. Up until then, you join in October, by the way, mm. the end of the season, September, October. So by January, the boss is happy. You're going to bolt both sides together. And then you, you walk out for your first ever Diamond 9, in green suits, looking like an ordinary pilot, and, you know, feeling apprehensive, feeling nervous, feeling, am I going to be all right? You know, please don't let me let the side down kind of stuff. You do your first Diamond 9 on the show, basically. show you can think you're going to put for the public that year. Now, it might be a bit raggedy and a bit sort of um, not as sharp as it's going to be, obviously, but then thereafter, you'll only ever fly a 9 again, on Diamond and the other shapes we, we make. And it just gets better and better and better. You get tighter and tighter and tighter. The, the boss flies a tighter pattern, and eventually you go in front of the Commander in chief of the uh, of the fighter world, as it were, and he gives the yes or no for the public display clearance. And if he says yes, then that's it. You go and this will happen around about March, probably. Then you get the thumbs up, then you go back to your room. We did it in Cyprus, we tend to do it in Cyprus, the guys go to Greece these days, but it's it's guarantee a month of decent weather before the season starts, put all the, the, the polish on it. And if the boss says, yeah, that or the modern chief role says, uh, yep, that will do. That's safe enough. I think it's a great display. Good luck, everybody. And uh, have a great year. Then you go back to your room and quietly put on the red seat you've taken out with you. And that, I have to say, is a, a big moment when you're a new boy in yeah, the three man. first years. You know, that's a kind of, it is a sp- special moment because I've been really wanting to join the since I was a boy,
2: mm-hmm. having
1: first seen them, you know, years and years ago. Now I thought, blimey, I think it's better than this. Which it does, <laughs> and then and that's it. Then you're a, a team member. But the only time I was going to say that I got nervous and had to conquer my, my real kind of blimey moment it was at Farnborough my first year on the team, uh, red three next to the boss, left hand side. So, one well, of the less dynamic moving slots, off often reserved for a newbie. And we would started up at Farnborough, and I thought, blimey, this is Farnborough out there's you know half a million people looking. Crowds and stuff. I knew my folk, my parents were in the board, the, uh, the crowd. My fiance was in the crowd. My, my girlfriend then, excuse me, was in the crowd. And I texted out and I couldn't stop my left knee from shaking. Really, <laughs> I was really wobbling. And I thought, come on, Riles is my Ethel's uh, nickname or Riles think You could do this. I know you can do this. What are you worried about? Everyone knows you can do it, so they wouldn't be here. Mm. And as soon as the boss called those start words, which are um, lights smoke on go power, which is and then red's rolling go. Back to trading mission again. Just right. fly it like a practice. Yeah. And never mind the crowds, never mind the fact that farm run, never mind all the history that goes with all that. Never mind I'm in the red arrow and the history that goes with all that. And you just reserve the stuff and you go back to your training. You go back to knowing that it works.
2: Mm.
1: And that's what I used to tell as you remember the people flying without fear of the courses. Put your trust in the fact it works. Believe in those that have believed in you. And it goes such a long way. Whatever you're frightened or apprehensive about, it's unlikely anybody out there is doing something that's never been done before by somebody else. Mm-hmm. Landing on the moon springs to mind, but they had faith in the system. They knew it was going to work. There's In their case, obviously, danger attached to it, but then they're all test pilots and they're all highly tuned, and the backup, support backup is colossal. Anybody getting into an airliner these days, big one, small one, short distance, long distance, has got to realise the system, manufacturing, the pilot training, the air traffic control, the weather, the, the takeoff and the landing airfields, it's been done countless times before, and it works. There you
0: go. That's great. That's very good. Yeah. Thanks so it's <laughs> much for coming. Yeah. Uh, yes, maybe so a fine. few more questions. <laughs> when we're watching the red arrows, we can see the precision and stuff. And you said it's you're literally six feet apart. Is that that's just phenomenal. How do you actually maintain six, a constant, that sort of distance? Well, moving. It, yeah. Yeah. yeah mind blowing. Um, it, well, again, it's
1: your talk like, flying. Formation, when you start flying training, yeah. So so people get used to doing formation flying. What we do is take it a bit closer than they normally do, and we go upside down with it, change shapes. Now, that's, again, not something that squadrons do. You do it through trigonometry. By that, I mean, I wish I had a blackboard here, but you know what I mean. If I'm in an aeroplane next to another aeroplane, and if I can look at his wingtip, I was left-hand side, so I would look at the leader's left wingtip, and I would put that wingtip in line with the leader's head.
2: okay? Hmm.
1: And i just keep it. So I could be six feet away from him. I could be 20 feet away from him. But I'm still looking wingtip to head. Okay? Wingtip to head. Then I'm up and down that line. Now, to make sure I'm at the right place on that line, I need another reference. For me, that reference was squaring off the tailplane wingtips. So there's two tailplanes at the back end, the elevators for Other word, and if I can make both those line up together, looking through one at the other, and I'm also looking through the wingtip of the leader's head, as it were, I've got a triangle there, haven't I? Mm. Trigonometrical triangle, and all I do is put myself where those two lines meet, and I know my aircraft will be in the right place for that particular manoeuvre. Now there'll be other manoeuvres when we change shape; I'll have a different set of references. And you, you work on these references until you're absolutely happy. Now, in the Reds, every single practice, every single practice is videoed from Datum. Datum's the center point of the crowd effect. Scamptons follow the runway, which we mark on the, uh, next to the runway with the camera members. And we would debrief every single pass. Every time the, the, the section would be a three ship in training, a five aircraft number, one, when all nine get together. Every time that pass came in front of the camera, I'm now talking about the debrief. we freeze frame the video and we got, literally we get a, a ruler, start measuring people. Are they the right place? Now we would have what's called left hand, right hand mismatch. So the right hand side has to be honest and say, now I'm absolutely sure I was in exactly the right place. Maybe three is a little close or a little bit short. Then the boss said, right, three, you've got to change your reference by six inches or nine inches or whatever it might be. Make it work. Make the diamond mm. work. And that would happen through every single section and every single change of shape from diamond to feathered arrow to concord, to hollow, eagle to line of breast to leader's benefit. Every single time it came in front of that camera, it freeze-framed and stopped. And every show we do, every display is also videoed by the camera and that would come back. And you would never fly another trip until you'd video debrief the first one. Interesting. And in the base, on the basis that I flew for three years, and on average we did just over hundred shows a year. that is days, uh, so it's three hundred and twenty public displays, five times that many practices probably.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: maybe a thousand flights, that kind of number, all videoed once. Boss and the debrief said, "Good show, guys. Nothing to so. say." Once we're always trying to improve. Yeah, and that's the, that's the, why it looks, dare I say, as good as it does because the guys the current guys doing it right now, the guys who join next, year, after, the year after them, guys have been after me and before me. It's what you do. You work at it.
0: So what's the? So uh, you know, people, there may be people listening. I can't imagine anyone's not heard of them, but I for one don't know why they were set up, or what the purpose of the Red Arrows is?
1: Good question. Yeah, well, in the old days, a simple simple fact really, it was to display to the general public what the Royal Air Force fighter world do, because no one ever sees fighter aircraft taking place. They might see them transit through the Lake District, or Yorkshire, or whenever you see a single airplane losing past. But to demonstrate the Air Force's ability to do things, and to do it accurately and professionally, there's always been fighter display units. It started in the 20s, started shortly after the Great War. Squadrons in those days were given air displays to go and do, and they'd invent things like close formation and looping and rolling and practice, you know, dropping flower bombs and stuff. And that grew and grew and grew into the jet age. And then the jet age were obviously the spectacle is a bit more impressive because of the noise and the proximity and stuff. And again, all squadrons were given, had a a part of their year was given to air and Of course, the cost of that became expensive. Uh, when the aircraft moved into Hunters and Lightnings, it was taking up a lot of money and, of course, became defence budgets being what they are. Squadrons can't afford the time to do this. You've got to do your mm. squadron stuff. Mm. So, um, the Central Flying School, the, the training command took over. And there was a bunch of red jet provosts that are a called the Red Pelicans and they had a f- Four or six, I think. but Four, definitely, maybe six. And they, they did actually, but Jet Provost not quite as punchy as Hunter. Now, at the time, the Black Arrows were flying, the Hunters, several One squadron who did an awful lot of this, but they were, they, became, they now became the RF fighter display team, Black arrow. And yet again, another defence budget came up and they said, well, actually, why do we need two? Let's just have one. <laughs> so the Black Arrows and the Red Pelicans started using the hawk, uh, excuse me, the Nat, the uh, fallen Nat, which is the fast jet trainer, precursor to the hawk. And the black arrows and the red pelicans became the red arrows, wow. 1964. There you go. Led initially by Ray Hanna, the world-famous Ray Hanna. Extraordinary guy, brilliant, brilliant pilot. And he really turned the red arrows into what they are now. And all we've been doing ever since is what they set out in those days in the early doors really the same shapes they changed they have different names we used to have a well Concorde. people still recognize Concorde. guys have a lancaster shape now we didn't have that they have a typhoon shape we didn't have that we had an eagle which they want eagle because it looked a bit like the moon Lambert, which was called eagle at some stage so we have that as homage to that we have so the guys you know the flavors change the display changes dynamically each year there's more rolling and Work and work and it just goes on and long may it continue long may it continue and it's an advert for the Royal Air Force for the general public is what I'm trying to say
0: yeah whenever I've seen it it's just been breathtaking so when you left that I mean that must have been hard in itself but did you notice that your there was any change in your skill level or was it were you the same just a few more stories <laughs>
1: You know I've got a lot of stories. Yeah. I went to the Red Arrows from the Hawk. I was a weapon instructor on the Hawk. So the aircraft type was, I knew it, back to front. And I was then on the Reds flying the Hawk. So I've got just 2,000 hours on the Hawk. And at the time on the Reds, I knew I was at the peak of my flying ability. You'll never get that level again. Um, international sports people, the, the Olympians have just come back from Tokyo. Right now, they're at the peak of their ability. Yeah. And it comes to you when you're you know, mid-20s, late-20s, kind of early-30s. You're not going to get that good again. I went back to the front line, back on the Phantom, in a responsible senior role, a flight commander role, where I didn't need to do the Red Arrow stuff, obviously. But I could still fly fighters. paid enough, I could get one to fly now, I reckon. But there you go. Golden crotchety. <laughs> but at the time, you know you're in a golden phase in your life. It was, I mean, what a privilege. What an honour to have been given that chance. to do it. And I'm forever grateful I've been given the chance. I've been grateful I, I think I could myself well for the three years I was in it. And I look back on it with great memories. But the guys you were in, I'd say, you spend more time with them in the year than you do with your own wife. That's a given. You're on the road all the time, summer, the winter you're training. You're at home at the winter, but you're flying every single day that the weather permits. Come the season, come the, the beginning of the season, We were away far more than we were at home because we go around Europe as well. Every four years, there is a big, probably big overseas tour. I was lucky to be involved in one that went to Russia. We literally shortly after the war came down, so that was a Mm.
2: that was
1: a special moment as well. Taking a an RAF squadron to Russia, which Mm. and being let out. Well, (laughs) yeah, I mean, all of us on the team at the time, fighter pilots, as as I said, and we were Russia to us had a different kind of connotation at the
2: time. Mm.
1: Our training, we were training to go there on a different kind of mission, which thank the Lord never happened. So that was an honor to be representing the RF and the UK, Great Britain PLC as it used to be known, overseas and feeling we were part of the UK plc. Yeah. Tremendous honor. Tremendous yeah.
0: honor. Great for what? Oh, God, there's so many questions, Tom. What about <laughs> who is the because you must have met loads of people when you're doing that that gig. Yeah. Who, who stands out to you?
2: Gosh.
1: Well, we met. The then Queen Mother was the honorary commander in chief of the Central Flying School, Mm. honorary commandant of the Central Flying School. And she would come on a visit uh, at least once every two years. And so she came on my second year. To Iris Campton, where we, uh, we were introduced to Her Majesty and uh, we all had a lunch uh, together. And then we, we excused ourselves and put on our red suits. Uh, it was a formal lunch, so it was best uniform at the time. And then we put on our red suit, went out to display for Her Majesty and the entourage and sat in front of the dais, as it were. So uh, for private air show, effective private display. That evening, for the previous evening, I'd asked my wife, or my now wife, to marry me. So we got engaged the morning of, as it were. Oh, amazing. So that kind of sits as a, as a family memory bank. Yeah. And never forget, so as a day, that stands out as a, as a biggie. Other people, I mean, yeah, you meet dignitaries, you meet, you meet sport people, you meet a lot of people from, from other nations who are display pilots as well, some of the big European air shows and stuff. They, that was great fun. Meet those guys, we had a really great relationship with the Patel de France and the, and the fresh tricolori from Tur- Italy. That's a name of two. The Spaniards were good, the Portuguese, were good. We had the American Thunderbirds, and I uh, came across a couple of times the Blue Angels. So you kind of hang around with these guys for a bit. But we always knew that they, they were really pleased to meet us. That was a
0: big thing. Mm. They've now
1: met the Red Arrow, which is yeah, I'm to them. <laughs> that is amazing. That
0: is amazing. So what would you say that the the time in the Red Arrows gave you in terms of obviously fighting flying skills? It, it sounds like you were at the top of the game, but there must have been some other attributes or things that it, it gave you that maybe still with you. I don't know. Yeah, uh, good question, There's a there's a there's sometimes a
1: misapprehension, misunderstanding that the Red Arrows are showboaters, you know, who are out there. Look at us, we're in the red suit and you can't miss them. <laughs> you know that I mean the an air show walking across the flight line in a red suit it's a special day because people you know, want your autograph they want I mean, they're not me they, they want the team they want a member of the Red Arrow I mean Dom Riley threw for the Red Arrow not the books heard of Dom Riley I've heard of the Red Arrows, But that's that's what it's all about it's about the, the unit not about the pilots we're just there to represent the team at that given time I might I, I'm genuine a pretty ordinary guy Obviously, I've got no preconceptions of beginning. And I'm just Joe, Joe Pilot. I've been very fortunate to fly some great airplanes, um, but I'm a you know, I'm kind of an ordinary fellow. Mm. What I did for three years was, was extraordinary, but deep down, I you know I kept thinking, "Oh, you know, me, There are several people who never thought this would happen, but <laughs> <so> <laughs> several people I'd never get through flying training. Um, most of my instructors along the way thought we'd never quite crack this, but they did <laughs> persevere and you get all sorts of places. But I, I knew through flying training I had been a training risk, as it's called. I had to work hard to get through, and I was very fortunate with some really good instructors who reckon I had the ab- ability, but I didn't have the confidence. So when I came back to be an instructor, I'd like to think I was that kind of instructor that could recognise yes. good in someone, All they needed was a gentle, guiding hand Mm. to get better. Mm. That's a mantra I've got. I I appear to have a sort of an empathetic gene that allows me to sympathize with folk that can't quite do something. If I can make them do it or get better at doing it, then uh, that's a good feeling for me. I like that. I I come from a family of schoolmasters. Both my brother and my my father were headmasters. So somehow there's a teaching gene in there somewhere. Yes. I, I couldn't academically teach but i can hopefully inspire people to perform better and when i find they have performed
2: better that's a big kick
0: Mm, i've seen it in action yeah i think you've got a way with there's you, you have that sort of gravitas as a speaker not just as a pilot that when people are listening you know if you said when you used to say things like turbulence may be uncomfortable it's not dangerous yeah. they believed you because every single there was such certainty about the way you delivered that line which i can say but it just doesn't carry it there's something about the way you would put that across that they'd go well fair enough yeah that's
2: nice <laughs> you to say
1: um i mean public speaking is one of my um my sidelines because i like speaking i like talking to people mm. i like explaining what I've done and how I like, I like cracking jokes as well. I, I just, I genuinely like entertaining people. I, I was lucky to entertain people in an airplane. And after I'd left the RF, I was flying vintage jets, doing the same thing, flying vintage jets in front of the public. There's something rewarding about that. And it was fascinating to fly a vintage aircraft. i do it for so long. So and doing, I mean, I can't, Play cricket for England. I'm never going to walk out at, Wim- at Twickenham or even Wimbledon, obviously. So, But I could walk out at Farnborough, strap on a, a display jet and go fly. And that, to me, was my moment in, in the sun. Mm. Conscious that as soon as it stops, I'm back to normal. So my wife keeps me grounded anyway. did keep me grounded. But I, I'm a fairly self-grounding bloke anyway. But I do have a passion for aviation, a passion for flying. When you first approached me years ago, because I want to start lecturing in the Flying Without Fair course, know, as you know, I jumped at it and yes. had a fascinating 10 years doing it. Yeah.
0: No, you are great. And we'll do it again.
1: You? I mean, I'd love to get involved again with it now.
0: Yeah. Well, this, I mean, just by you talking now, this is helping people listen. You'll get those nice, lovely comments from this, and I'll make sure I pass them on to you because... <laughs> So what about yeah, well, the shift from com- some from military to commercial? How did that go? You know, because it's a uh, you know, because well, you know, I would have thought it was adrenaline fueled flying. Uh, uh, I don't know, I could be wrong, but it looks it looks very stable, very safe compared to what you're used to doing.
1: All aircraft are safe. It's what you do with them that makes them unsafe. Whether it's a fighter jet, a training aircraft, a TC9, a Cessna 150, in the wrong hands. It's a dangerous thing. It's like mm. a car. We all drive cars that are capable of 150 miles an hour. Hopefully, most of us drive them at 70. or oh, you know, slash 60, slash 30, 40, whatever. We drive them appropriately. And that keeps us safe and other people safe. Now, aeroplanes are exactly the same thing. They are engineered to um, fantastic tolerances. They are flown by highly professional and competent pilots and cabin crew. They are looked after. They're serviced every single day, which most people's cars aren't. Once on the MOT seems to be good enough for most, and me, obviously, in my car. Hmm. But an airplane, civilian airplane, an airline serviced every single day. So as a unit, it's a very safe thing. It's a very, very safe entity. Now, put a very, very competent airline captain, airline first officer in a very, very safe airplane you've got a pretty impressively safe thing, haven't you? Mm. Which is why we have a fantastic track record in this country and in Europe and worldwide, really. But aviation is a safe place to be in the right hands. If you get a complete empty flying a little aircraft, light aircraft or a poorly trained airline, somewhere around the world, then it might not be quite the same event, but... All the ones that we need to concern ourselves with, no, it's a, it's a safe, safe thing to do. But in answer back to back a bit, answer your question about the jump from military to civilian, yeah, it was huge. The biggest thing I'd ever flown, out to, two Now I'm flying a thing that's got three pilots and 350 passengers and 14 cabin crew. That's totally different set of um, skill requirements, skill levels required, except the same thing underlies and under, underpins all of it, which is learn it get trained properly, keep current, keep your training up to level, and be responsible and be, be humble when you're flying it. Airline is all about getting made to be safely, securely, and as quickly as they need to. Not about you know, showing off obviously. So it's, it's, a, it's like climbing on a, uh, you know, a coach or a bus or a train or your friend's car. You, know, you put your trust in the person who's operating that piece of machinery. Uh, and if you don't, then you wouldn't get in your neighbour's car if you thought they were unsafe. You wouldn't get in a bus company if you thought they were unsafe. You wouldn't get in a train that you know has got a hideous track record. Excuse the pun. I, I can't wanna...
0: excuse it, but carry on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you, you possibly wouldn't want to fly in an air, in a, by an airline or, or an aircraft that you think in certain parts of the world may not be flown mm. by hugely competent crew or engineered magnificent. That's that's an independent you know, personal choice. So, learning to fly a 300 ton airliner was a challenge, a challenge. And also, learning to fly in the, the crew environment. Because I've ever, only ever flown an airplane, with me as the pilot. Now, of course, an airliner, you've got two pilots. You start off as a first officer, working for the captain, calls the shots. You have an equal role to play in the aircraft with no airliner can fly itself or fly by one pilot. You need to. But it's a question of understanding your role. And then, if you pass the captain's course, which, um, which luckily did. he becomes the captain and now you call shots you still have to have a competent first officer and know that the training he's gone through is the same training you went through mm. and in airlines and this is true across the board every single airline pilot must go back to the simulator every six months for eight hours of training so you know how many bus drivers coach drivers train drivers neighbours cars do you know that sit, uh, driving exam every six months And we are trained constantly to be up to speed on it. Mm. Which is why I would put my children
2: and any members of my family in any European airline, with me in it or not in it. I just trust all of them,
1: literally all of them, Air France, Lufthansa, United, Delta, any any of them, Virgin BA, Jet 2, EasyJet, or, you know, name me an airline. That...
0: Testing your list of airline, airlines. Then.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't have it written down in front of me, should I? Yeah,
0: someone's feeling left out right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, quite. And to all of you others out there, uh, the thing, people should know this as well. The listeners should know this, that any aircraft flown by any airline that wants to land in UK has to be proved that the crew, the engineering and the aeroplane itself are at the same competence level as a UK airline. Okay, so, if it flies in a Gatwick, Heathrow, Manchester, Leeds, wherever, you can rely on the fact that it's safe.
0: So, would it's, you say that's the same for all the sort of developed world, you know, like US and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: yeah. as you say, the developed world, absolutely, Paul, yeah. Now, I've flown in and out of Hong Kong, I've flown out of Shanghai and Sydney and all points in America, and Europe, and what have you, South Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are parts in the world. You know, I've mentioned this before in the lectures I used to give. There are parts of the world I wouldn't fly. Yeah, I, I just don't think, and they're all on YouTube, some of them aren't they these days. And you see some of these YouTube footage, and you think, my God. Yeah. That, however, is not representative of a developed country's airline. In fact, I'll put that out there right now. But that's a question of choice. If you want to fly from here to um, America, for Europe, holiday, in the Far East, Cafe, all these airlines, absolutely say one of the same. We're trained the same way. We have the same ideology. You don't get to be a captain unless you've already gone at least four thousand hours. So you know they're not new boys. These people they're, they're trained well. I The thing about simulator, they're constantly trained. Mm. We're up to speed.
0: Trust me. I mean that's brilliant. I mean that's very reassuring. The thing that I was wondering about was that does it give you an advantage? having come from a military background, or make no difference once you get into the civil world. So They're I guess there's a bunch of things
1: there. That made no difference. What I had to do, well, we all have to do, is learn from others. Now, I joined an airline Virgin, as you know, where a lot of the pilots were military, a lot of them were non-military, never been near the military, and they were on a part. I mean, they are, just because you haven't been in the military does not make you any less of a pilot. Just because you've been in the military does make you a, good, a great pilot. It's a different pilot. Everybody brings something different to the table of experience levels. I had a hell of a lot of learning to do to understand how a multi-crew environment works. I think that all of the guys coming out of single-seat military, um, two-seat military, that, yeah, you've got to learn that now you're not the kingpin. You are responsible to the other pilots and by association the rest of the crew. Now, dealing with people has not been one of my problems, particularly. but learning the concept of a four-engined civilian airliner was totally different. And I had great instructors to, to get me through all that. And to other pilots, you talked to in the bar and down route: and how, how do you find this and that? And what you, what's your way of doing this and that? And it all—you well, just learn from others outside of the actual training, which is great anyway. So the challenge was, was massively different. The adrenaline was the same because. They're pushing back and taxiing out a 300 ton airliner for me and lining it up and having done all the planning, the weather, and the research and the met forecasts and this and the other, and getting it airborne, climbing out was, was just every bit as demanding as anything a firm military, just a different kind of, mm. of, of demand. And I'm, all pilots like adrenaline. I remember the very first time I flew an aircraft in the RAF, my instructor, it was a Jet Provost, Mark III, and my instructor was a chap called uh, Keith Walker, lovely old guy called Keith Walker. And after we would flown that one trip, my first ever trip, I said to him, do you still like doing this, sir? And he said, the day I don't like doing it, I'm going to stop. And that was 43 years ago. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> he's still around. And it's a mantra I've kept. I mean, you know, it's true. If you, if, if you don't want to be there, it's the wrong place not to want to be. Mm-hmm. Follow me. Yeah. Because there's demands. I mean, high demands on pilots. Certainly the, the ultra-long-haul flying that we used to do. Yeah, you'd be working the wrong time of day. Your circadian rhythm's up the spout. You had a, a hotel night stop where the, you know, the light couldn't close the curtains properly. You had you know, wrong diet for 24 hours. You're tired. You're coming back across the Atlantic. But... The thing that keeps you going is the thing that keeps you going. It's the trust with other pilots. The fact it's the job you want to be there. You want to see the dawn rise, the land properly, make the best landing you ever can ever. It's it's a it's a thrill. I mean, I've been so, so fortunate in my career doing what i love doing. Every single minute of it. <laughs> That's
0: great. I mean, it's a, good, a friend of yours, I know he's a friend, but we had Fred Finn on one of the other podcasts, and he was – waxing lyrical about you. He mentioned you at least two or three times during the podcast. Hey. So I don't know if you remember Fred.
1: I know Fred very well. Yeah, not seen him for a long time, but uh, Fred, uh, he, he's an interesting chap, isn't he, Fred?
0: Yeah, he yeah. still is the world's most travelled man, I think.
1: Yeah, well, that was when he was of fame when I joined Virgin. It was, um, I was, I, I we flew Richard Branson, long story short, we flew Richard Branson every year the Red Flyer celebrity uh, who then writes something in the next year's brochure. It's Kind of a way of just keeping the message going, and that year we'd flown uh, Richard Branson team. And most of the celebrities I don't, I've long forgotten how they do it these days, but uh, they would kind of offer a little something back. We flew in both of them. year for me was in both of them, and he you know produced a bunch of test match tickets and things like that. Large amounts will we flew in, uh, things, things on that one. Anyway, Richard Branson, very, 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 very kindly. nothing was expected. You understand, nothing was actually to, to be expected anyway. He came back and said. I can't this for everybody, but we're opening up a route to San Francisco, get me to San Francisco, here is two tickets, three on the, the inaugural flight, You've got to work out who's going to have them. So it was a names to the hat, There's only nine names to go, ten names, including the manager. Anyway, I, my name popped out. So Steffi, my wife, and I had an all-expenses-paid trip to San Francisco and back, in the mm-hmm. weekend. A real rush, and Fred was on that. And, uh, as the world most travelled man, there were other celebrities. And I don't count myself as a uh, obviously. Anyway, that's where we met. And uh, we kept in contact for several years. And he was there as the most travelled man. He had something like 10 million miles in Concord or something. Extraordinary fellow. Yes. Nice guy. Liked him a lot. Like him a lot. Let's hunt him down one day. So if you're out there, Fred, hello.
0: Yes. I'll <laughs> well, put you in contact with him because he he talks about you know, when I've sp- spoken to him several times. It always mentions you, so yeah. it's, a, well, there it's we a, get. An important memory. There you go. So you had a, a lasting impact upon him, and also you've helped thousands of people get over their fear of flying.
1: I think we did some summer. Talk. I did some summertime when I uh, moved away from down south, settled in Yorkshire for a few years.
0: Just,
1: I, I added up how many flying fears we've done you and I together, and. I reckon I just topped 9,000 people, uh, and those, they wrote back to you. I know they did. Uh, people did. Not, it wasn't just me, clearly. Other pilots and other instructors did the same thing, but they were cured, weren't they? I mean, the course cured them, and yeah. they came back and started flying more and more and regularly, and from the, the – I mean, some, certain people stand out in my mind now that there was a lady who wanted to go and see her family in – I think it was Tasmania. And she couldn't do it. She simply couldn't get an aeroplane. Mm. Now she goes once a year uh, to Tasmania, Bank because she understood what the course was all about. And you and your fantastic staff and me and a couple of stories along the way and other pilots that took part in the, in the course, we can help explain that it's, it's normal. It's, it's worth being apprehensive about because on paper, it's got the danger written all over it. But that's the misguided paper. Mm. Truth, truth of the matter is, aeroplanes were meant to fly. They're designed to fly. They will fly. Things don't go wrong. If they go slightly awry, there are highly trained pilots up there to land it at the nearest suitable airfield. And that's what we do. We, we are so safety aware and, and uh, safety conscious, not just about the aeroplane, but how we operate it. Every single trip has got diversion airfields all the way along it. And if something happened, we land at an intermediate airfield. In fact, as you know, you know, well, it's, it's, a, it's a massively researched and operated procedure, airline flight. It's not just put together on a whim, it's very regulated, very well thought out, very well engineered, it's very well flown, and it's great fun.
0: <laughs> you are a great advert for it, though, honestly. What's the, the future hold for? Don Riley, you, I know you've been doing motivational speaking, things like that, I yeah. guess, talking about the Reds and stuff. Is that is yeah, that the plan?
1: Yeah. yeah, I do that. I'm moving into more, more now. Um, yeah, yeah I, I do motivational speaking. I, uh, I talk uh, afternoon speaking. I've uh, done several lectures down in London uh, for various companies. Um, yeah, I do. That's what the you know, the illness that I have um at the moment, it looks like I'm not going to go back commercial flying again, which is a you know, travesty, but I'm getting older. Days are moving on. I'll be retired shortly. <laughs> so yeah, the more time I've got, spare time, I'm going to do all that much more regularly. So mm-hmm. if anybody wants a motivational speaker, wants to hear about stories about flying of any sort whatsoever, get in touch with Paul Tizzard. They can write to me on uh, the address he will give you, save people rushing on pens and paper now. Yes. Yeah, anybody wants to get in touch with me on a one-to-one basis, or a company lecture, or a company after dinner, or a, a motivational thing. I did a couple down in Brighton and a company in uh, in London recently. That's what I plan to do and keep spreading the word because I know we know you know there are millions of people out there who are who can fly. I mean, they say that it's. 30% of every airline passenger load, as it were, so 100 out of mild 300 passenger airbus uh, numbers, are phobic. So mm. a third of the passengers flying are unsure, underconfident, of flying, ranging from the mildly, am oh, sure this isn't right, to the very, very, very upset they won't get on, or people that come on your course yes. and listen to these podcasts. We, between us, we can, we can cure all of them, because... It takes a few t- minutes of discussion, and expanding on what I'm saying now, that it, it is safe. Turbulence is safe. Night flying is safe. There was a lady once on the course, if you remember her, who um, was convinced that it wasn't safe for aircraft to fly at night, because there's not as much lift at night, apparently. Hmm. So what she'd read somewhere, i been told somewhere, you know? Yes. you know not true <laughs> the airplane yeah. doesn't fly; it just is it's flying it's not sentient being it doesn't know it's day night being cloud, up whatever it's and i've proved, as we've talked i started with the airplanes fly upside down as well
0: yeah fighter so airplanes not with me in it fighter so airplanes
1: not airliners <laughs> airliners <Now, laughs> are engineered not to fly upside down angle <laughs> bank limiter you can't put more too much angular bank on these days rightly so so they're even safer they used to be they're getting safer every single time i mean each time the manufacturers build a new one it's got more enhancements than they had in the previous one. Like cars. I mean, cars are inherently getting safer. Not yes. necessarily the ones that park themselves, but cars are safer than when you and I started driving.
0: Dom Riley, thank you <laughs> so much. That was just brilliant. Paul, it's
1: been great to chat with you again. It's been a long time. I know. So that was to awesome. get together. Is,
0: um, I'm looking forward. So I'll put Dom's details in the bottom of the podcast. And I just want to say thanks, Dom. You've been, as always, brilliant. Thank
1: you. I've enjoyed it immensely having a chinwag. And yeah, I love it. Good luck to all those people who might take something from this.